Well, good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I want to welcome all of you here, uh, whether you're worshiping in person or you're watching online. And I also want to echo what Mike said earlier. We do appreciate our veterans. Uh, we are grateful for you, whether you're a part of Plum Creek or not. And we never want to take your service and your sacrifice for granted. So again, thank you. Well, we are starting a new series this morning. It's called The Test. And we all go through tests and trials and temptations. And in this series, we're looking to Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus can help us go through these tests and come out stronger on the other side. Now, I, uh, I, I know that the word test, it can mean lots of different things. So I looked up a def definition. And here's what Google told me. A test is a procedure intended to establish the quality, the performance, or the reliability of something. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because we often think of a test as a negative thing, but it often has a positive purpose. This week, I was remembering the first time I took my driving test. Some of you remember that too. Uh, I was 16 years old. I was really stressed about it. It was nerve-wracking. And I can remember uh, that parallel parking. Uh, man, I, I ran over a few cones on that one. I, I eventually got it. Uh, and I know that my 16-year-old self would have loved to skip past that test and go straight to driving. But now, as a grown-up, I'm like, no, it's a good idea for teenagers to take that test. It's a good idea to test the quality, performance, or reliability of our drivers before we set them loose on the road. And this is something that we'll see in this series. Yeah, we might wish that we could skip past all of our tests, but God has a plan to use our tests for good. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at one of the most famous tests of all time. It's a true story. It's found in Luke chapter 4, and here's how it begins. Luke 4, starting with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And the word tempted there can also be translated as test. So this is the classic story of the temptation of Jesus. If you've been around church for a while or you grew up in Sunday school, you're probably familiar with this story. But in case this is new to you or you don't remember it well, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary. First, Jesus goes out to a desolate place all by himself. And then who shows up? It's the devil. And by the way, um, here at Plum Creek, we do believe in a literal devil. He's not just a metaphor He's not a fairy tale. Satan is a real enemy who wants to destroy you. And yes, I realize some people think it's kind of silly to believe in a literal devil. But I'll tell you what, Jesus believes that he's real. Of course, uh, he has firsthand experience. Out there in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus three different times in three different ways. First, after he, he spends 40 days in the wilderness going without food, Satan tempts Jesus. He shows up and he says, hey, uh, if you are really the Son of God, 
Why don't you turn that stone into bread? Now, Jesus is super hungry, but he resists that temptation. He quotes scripture. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. So he doesn't give in. Satan tries again. He says, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. But again, Jesus doesn't take the bait. So Satan tries one more time. He takes Jesus to the city of Jerusalem and then up to the top of the temple. And he says, Jesus, why don't you jump off this temple? Uh, this time, the devil quotes scripture. He says, it's okay, Jesus. God said that he will not let you get hurt. His angels will catch you. At the same time, uh, just like the other two temptations, Jesus resists. He's faithful. He does what his heavenly Father wants him to do. And in this series, we're going to look more closely at each one of these temptations. We'll cover one a week for three weeks. But before we dig in here, I want you to know something from the beginning. This story is not just about temptations and tests. This story is really about worship. You see, every temptation is an invitation to worship a false god. When somebody gives in to temptation, here's what they're saying. They're saying, God, I'm sorry. I just want what I want, and it doesn't really matter what you say. Now, the Bible calls that idolatry. Whenever you put some person or something above God, you have made that person or that thing into an idol or a false god. But you know, temptation is also an opportunity for something good. Temptation is an invitation to worship the true God. God looks at each one of us and he says, you can trust me. Will you let me be the king in your life? Will you let me have first place? God wants us to know that he can be trusted. He wants us to know that he's always good and he's always faithful. And because he wants us to know those things, he allows us to be tested because that's where we learn those lessons. Unfortunately, though, we're all human beings and humans have a long track record of failing spiritual tests. That started way back with Adam and Eve and then it continued with Abraham and Moses and David and the entire nation of Israel. They all failed spiritual tests, and, and we do too. God gave us his law. He told us how to live, and he gave each one of us a conscience. But all too often, we say, nah, I don't like those rules. I want to do things my way. And the Bible has a word for that. The word is sin. When God tells us no, and we say yes, that's sin. When God tells us to go and we stay put, that is sin. Whenever we choose our will above his will, the word for that is sin. Now, in our world today, many people minimize this idea of sin. Uh, in some cases, they try to do away with it altogether. A few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary made some changes the editors deleted several words from the dictionary, including the word sin. Now, this is the Oxford Junior Dictionary. It's aimed at seven to nine-year-olds. Nine 
And so the editors were like, you know, kids these days, they don't need to know about sin. Sin is a concept that's just outdated. But it really doesn't matter whether or not we like this word. God takes sin very seriously, far more seriously than we do. According to Scripture, sin is what separates us from God. And over and over again, the Bible leads us to turn away from sin and choose God instead. Here's an example. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. That sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? What exactly does John mean here? Well, when he uses this phrase, the world, he's talking about created things. And when he says the word love, he's talking about whatever it is that you give your heart to. And it's inappropriate to give your heart to created things because the creator is the only one who deserves your heart. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul and your mind and your strength. That's very difficult for us to do. We don't want to give God our, our whole heart. And do you know why? It's because we're lured by false gods. That's what John is talking about there in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're, we're tempted to serve these desires instead of serving God. And it's very interesting. Uh, these three desires line up perfectly with the three ways that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Here's what I mean. The lust of the flesh is when you say, I want to feel good. And with Jesus, that was the temptation to turn stones into bread. Lust of the eyes is when you say, I want more. And when the devil tempted Jesus by promising all the kingdoms of the world, he was trying to tap into that desire. And then finally, there's the pride of life. That's when you say, I want my life to be about me. And when the devil told Jesus to jump off the temple and be caught by the angels, he was tempting Jesus to become an instant celebrity, an instant hero. But to do that, Jesus would skip past the cross, skip past his, his mission, why he came. Now, like I said, as we go through this series, we're going to look at each of these desires and temptations one at a time. And today, we're looking at the lust of the flesh. So, uh, let's get specific here. If, if we're talking about the false gods of pleasure, where, where would we find those gods in our world today? Well, we could mention lots of different things, but let's look at three common areas of our lives. Food, entertainment, and sex. And you might notice something right away here. These aren't inherently bad things, are they? These are all gifts from God. I mean, God gave us food. God invented laughter and fun. We didn't come up with that. 
And sex is also one of God's good gifts, even though our grandparents didn't want to admit that out loud. But seriously, in, in James chapter 1, we learn that every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. And then Jesus tells us that our Father wants to give us good gifts. So what's the big deal? What's wrong with enjoying these good gifts? Well, these things become a problem when we worship the gift instead of the giver. It's a big problem when we pursue pleasure at all costs, whether it's God's will or not. But serving these false gods will lead to disillusionment because the pleasure doesn't last, dependence because (laughs) these things can be addictive, and eventually destruction. And that may sound like an exaggeration, but according to Scripture, it's not. When someone chooses any false god over the true God, there are serious spiritual consequences. Rejecting the true God leads to spiritual death, eternal separation from God in hell. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah says, those who worship false gods turn their back on all God's mercies. God wants to show mercy. He offers forgiveness through Jesus to everyone. And he wants to free us from the devastating consequences of idolatry. God wants to help you, but you've got to let go of your idols. In Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Now, if we choose to worship a counterfeit God, he is heartbroken, but God will honor that decision. He allows us to serve created things, if that's our choice. But if we step into eternity clinging to a false God, we spend eternity separated from the real God. So let's remember the seriousness of what we're talking about here. We have got to be serious about fighting temptation, passing the test. We have to be ready because these tests are coming. So let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And let's look at the correlation between the lust of the flesh and that first temptation. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So the devil was trying to use the lust of the flesh to tempt Jesus. And in this case, it's the simple desire for food, the hunger for food. And think about that. After 40 days in the wilderness without food, how good would it be to just take a bite of bread? That would be so good. And that's how the lust of the flesh works. This desire promises a shot of pleasure. And all you got to do is satisfy your appetite But Jesus knows God's will. He knows that it's not quite time to break this fast. So he has a decision to make. Serve God, follow his plan, or 
serve the lust of the flesh and take a little bite of that bread. Now, all of us are very familiar with the lust of the flesh. We, we can admit that, right? We, we know what it's like to, to have an appetite that would lead you to cross a boundary that God told you not to cross. Our appetites just don't want to behave. In fact, they'll even try to get you to break your own rules that you set for yourself. That happened to me this week. Uh, I find it very curious. Why do I break my own rules? My wife and I set up a few guidelines about what we eat. Uh, for example, this, this might seem weird to you, but Hannah and I made a rule that we're not going to eat ice cream on Wednesday nights. But I have a confession to make. Uh, this week, Wednesday, it just happened to be a long day for me. I got home late. And when the kids went to bed, I, I was tired, uh, but I was hungry, and I wanted a snack. And unfortunately, we were all out of the healthy snacks that I try to eat on Wednesdays. So I went to the freezer, I opened the door, and there it was. It was a container of brown butter bourbon truffle ice cream. I mean, seriously, if it had been vanilla, I probably would have been fine. But brown butter bourbon truffle, I confess, I destroyed that stuff. <laughs> and by doing so, I broke my own rule. So easy to do, isn't it? Now, I want to be clear. God did not tell us that we can't eat ice cream on Wednesday nights. But he has told us that we can't just follow our desires wherever they happen to lead. So when it comes to the lust of the flesh... How do we know what qualifies as sin? How do we know when we've crossed over the line and, and gone into idolatry? Well, again, we're talking about food and entertainment and sex. Those are our examples. And all of those were originally good gifts from God. So when does a good gift become a false god? Well, I have two questions that you can ask yourself. Number one, what is your primary source of of satisfaction, comfort, and delight. Where, where are you looking for that? Let's go back to Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan told him to turn that stone into bread, how did Jesus respond? He responded with Scripture. And in Matthew's version of this story, Jesus says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you see what Jesus is doing there. He's looking to God as his ultimate source of satisfaction, comfort, and delight. You see, there are two ways to look at a loaf of bread. Uh, one way is to say, my happiness will come from this bread as soon as I eat it. This is my source of happiness. The other way is to say, God is my source of happiness. And one way he satisfies me is through bread. So if I enjoy this bread his way, within his parameters, it's a good gift. So in your life, how are you looking at God's good gifts? Do you see them as your source of satisfaction, comfort, or delight? Because if so, you will try to squeeze pleasure out of them at any cost. So evaluate. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to fulfill your desire for pleasure. That leads us to the second question. Are you about to cross a boundary that God has set for the enjoyment of good gifts? 
Now, when Jesus was tempted, he had a special boundary that doesn't apply to us. Uh, God has not called us to resist food after fasting for 40 days. So what boundaries has God given us? Well, when it comes to food and entertainment, if we want to honor God, we have to think about two categories, quantity and quality. First, quantity. How much food should we eat? How much time should we spend entertaining ourselves? Well, you got two ends of the spectrum. If you try to live without fun, without food, that'll kill you. But on the other side, the other extreme, you've got overindulgence. So what's the, what's the right balance between these two ex- extremes? Well, to be honest, the Bible doesn't give us a clear cutoff here. There's no commandment that says, thou shalt not spend more than 10 hours a week watching sports. And there's no verse that says, uh, when somebody eats more than 3,000 calories a day, that person is a food worshiper. We don't get rules like that, and I'm, I'm glad that we don't, because that would be legalism. At the same time, though, we should prayerfully consider this issue of quantity. I saw a surprising, a surprising statistic this week. Back in 2013, Americans were on their phones an average of two hours and 21 minutes a day. Here in 2021, just eight years later, Americans spend an average of five hours and 24 minutes a day. Now, I've asked this question before, but What did we used to do before smartphones? How were we spending that five hours and 24 minutes? Was that a good trade-off? It's something to consider. There's a great quote from John Piper. He said, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that our lack of prayer was not due to a lack of time. So we do need to consider this question of quantity. Uh, But we also have to think about quality. When it comes to food, are are we damaging our bodies with what we eat and drink? Or with entertainment, are are we doing damage to our souls? Do we watch or listen to things that kind of pull us away from God or away from his will? Again, the Bible doesn't give us legalistic guidelines here like God is okay with PG-13, but he's not okay with rated R. We don't, get man, we don't get guidelines like that, and I don't want to give you man-made rules. But I will say this, when I evaluate our culture, I think far too often uh, we're just really careless about what we take into our bodies and our hearts and our minds. So we need to pray and think about what really honors God in these areas. But now, what about God's boundaries when it comes to sex? Well, I talked about this in a sermon a couple weeks ago. God's word is very consistent about sex. Here's an example from Ephesians chapter 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, in this verse, uh, that phrase, sexual immorality, is translated from a Greek word that appears uh, several times in the Bible. The Greek word is pornea. And yes, it is no accident that this word sounds a lot like the word porn. 
Throughout Scripture, pornea refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage, with marriage being defined as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. So pornography, adultery, any other kind of sex outside of marriage, these are all pornea. And this is the boundary that God has told us not to cross. Now, of course, for many people in our culture, this boundary looks ridiculous. It's, it's oppressive. It's hopelessly out of date. But I'll tell you what's really going on. Our culture has elevated sex to the point of idolatry. They're saying, hey, you have a right to this pleasure. Uh, this pleasure should be available to you on demand without restriction as long as it's among consenting adults. And you're actually less than human if you're not finding pleasure from sex on your own terms. So many people have bought into this lie and one person after another has crossed over God's boundary and they're on a road that leads to disillusionment and dependence and destruction. Now, I know this particular false god is very common in our world today. And I'm not trying to load you down with a bunch of guilt. Man, with everything we're talking about today, we all have an area where we need to come clean before God. And I want you to know something. If you are currently struggling with some kind of lust of the flesh, God still loves you. And it's precisely because of his love that he comes down so hard on idolatry. God's anger burns against idolatry, partly for his own sake, because it's a direct insult when we serve a false god instead of him. But his anger is also for your sake, because he wants to spare you from the damage, the destruction that comes from being a slave to sin. He is for you. So I pray that you don't walk out of here feeling beat down. I pray that all of us will walk out of here with a wake-up call, that we'll be ready to say, no, I refuse to worship some God of pleasure. I won't settle for serving a counterfeit God. You know, a wake-up call is good, but we also need a game plan. Every one of us will be tempted in some way this week, and we need to be ready for temptation. Because, man, when those desires rise up and start to take over, we just don't think very clearly. So what do we do? Well, I want to close by giving you a few things to remember when the gods of pleasure become, come calling. So first, remember this. If you are being tempted, you're in good company because all of us have been tempted by the lust of the flesh. Every person in history has been tempted, even Jesus. And so it's not wrong to be tempted. You didn't ask for that. But here's a second thing to remember. Your response to temptation is your responsibility. You are the one who chooses whether or not you will worship a false god. And yes, it's often difficult to make the right choice. So here's the third truth. Number three, resistance is possible through the word of God and the spirit of God. When Jesus resisted the temptation to turn stones into bread, he showed us how to have victory over the lust of the flesh. You know, there's a very important thing that we haven't talked about yet. Do you know what happened 
right before Jesus went into the wilderness, immediately before he was tempted, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And in his baptism, Jesus received the Spirit of God and the Word of God. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 3. As Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit of God came down like a dove and rested on him. And so from there, Luke 4, 1, we read this. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He, he had the power of the Spirit for whatever lay ahead. And then after the Spirit came down like a dove, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus got a word of affirmation from the Heavenly Father. So do you see it? Jesus receives the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And then he goes straight into battle against Satan and against temptation. And why is that so important? Well, the Spirit gives Jesus spiritual strength when his flesh is weak. And the Word reminds Jesus of the truth when the devil tries to deceive him. What did the devil say? He said, if you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. If. Satan was trying to cast doubt on the truth. But the Father, what had he just said? He said, this is my beloved son. That was truth. And that truth was fresh in Jesus' mind. You know, we should pay attention here because the word of God and the spirit of God are available to us. Right before Jesus was baptized, John tried to talk him out of it. He said, Jesus, this just doesn't seem right. If anything, you should baptize me. But what did Jesus say? He said, no, John, this should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. So, Jesus, so John agreed to baptize him. When, when Jesus was baptized, he gave us an example to follow. He said, this must be done. He said, I need to do this because you need to do this. Jesus doesn't want to send us into the wilderness without weapons. We need the Word. We need the Spirit. Because when we have the truth of Scripture in our minds and the power of the Spirit in our hearts, we can have victory over temptation. I'll give you one last thing to remember when you fight the lust of the flesh, and it's this. We need to delight in Christ instead of a counterfeit God. Remember what I said at the beginning. Every temptation is an invitation to worship the true God. So accept that invitation. Fix your eyes on Jesus so you can understand that he is a far greater treasure than any short-term pleasure that you might get from pursuing the lust of the flesh. So make the right choice. Reject the idol and serve God. But let's be honest. As we sit here on a Sunday morning, it's easy to agree with all of this. But when this service is over and you go back home, you go back into the world, you're going to need some backup. And like I said, God himself is your greatest source of help. But in many situations, you need people too. You need an accountability partner. 
You may need a counselor, and that's okay. We all need help. So do you have a person like that in your life? If you don't have one, find one. Find someone who can help you choose Jesus over whatever is tempting you. Find someone who can help you see Jesus as the treasure that he is. You know what really helps me love and appreciate Jesus? It's his grace. See, I've struggled with these desires just like anybody. And trust me, in my life, I have not won every battle against temptation. And Jesus could have thrown me out with the trash and given me just what I deserve. But he didn't do that. Jesus died for me. He paid for my sin so that I could receive an inheritance that I never could have earned. The inheritance of eternal life. And when I remember that, when I remember what he did for me, my love for him grows. And I want to reject every false god that tries to get in the way. So how do we remember Jesus in the moment of temptation? Well, let me give you one final challenge, one action step. This week, when you get to that moment of being tested, that moment of temptation, when you feel drawn by the gods of pleasure, stop, turn away from idolatry, and then go read Romans chapter 8. Listen to God's word. Take it in. God will teach you to find your satisfaction, your comfort, and your delight in Christ. And he will give you the power and the strength to pass the test. Let's pray. Father, you know how weak we are. But Lord, we need to know what a treasure you are. I think about the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus so that the things of this world grow dim in comparison. Lord, help us to pass these tests, win these battles so that we can honor you and give you glory in the way that we live and help others see what you want for us, which is our good. You want us to receive your grace and receive this inheritance of eternal life. So we pray for that help. In Jesus' name, amen.